While Trevor frantically packed and repacked his gear, I reviewed the border checklist in my head. I had the prerequisite paperwork and copies of every document. I'd memorized a few Spanish phrases, please don't shoot me, and we're not traveling together. I felt prepared for the worst. After half an hour of navigation along Labyrinth superhighways that streaked through the sky, we killed our engines and coasted up to the border. I removed my helmet, careful not to make any sudden movements. The guard looked genuinely annoyed as he motioned for me to keep moving. And just like that, we found ourselves in the chaos of Juarez, breathing Mexican exhaust, covered in Mexican dust, and dodging Mexican traffic. And that was an excerpt from Jeremy Craker's Motorcycle Therapy, a Canadian adventure in Central America. Well, I'm sure some of you know, border crossings don't always go that easy. And on this episode, we're going to talk with Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited about just that. We're talking about border crossings. We're talking about paperwork, carnets, and all the different things that are associated with border crossings. So if you're not familiar with border crossings, there's a lot to learn here. And it's not as scary once you hear it from Grant's perspective. And for those who have done it many times, I'm sure there's lots to learn from this as well, as Grant brings a lot of information to the table. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. Stay with us. This is Harold Olofsipol from Giant Loop, talking to you on Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. I'm a traveler, motorcyclist and author, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, I've got something rather fantastic coming up this next weekend, for me anyway. I'm going to the Horizons Unlimited meeting uh, in Ontario. I'm really stoked about this. This is going to be a lot of fun. The, the Horizons Unlimited Travelers meeting is uh, being held in Perry Sound, and I'll be there on Saturday. And no one better to explain what goes on at a Horizons Unlimited Travelers meeting than Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. Hi, Grant. Welcome back. Thanks, Jim. It's good to be back. Grant, I know you just came back from the Horizons Unlimited Travelers meeting in the cusp, which was the best ever, and I want to hear about that. But first, I thought we'd just talk for a second about Travelers meetings in general. What is the Horizons Unlimited Travelers meeting, and what can people expect if they go to one? That's a, a good question. A lot of people have a, a hard time understanding what it is, what the events are all about, and why they should go to it. Uh, I think if you think of a motorcycle rally, your usual rally, and a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to go to the HU rally or something. It's not a rally. It's not a motorcycle rally. It's very, very different thing from the usual you would expect. There's no um, loud bands. There's not a wild party. There's not a whole lot of burnouts. That kind of stuff is, is a motorcycle rally, but it's not an HU travelers meeting. The travelers meetings are really focused around, I guess you could say, our tagline, which is inspiring, informing, and connecting travelers. So one of the big things that we do a lot of is inspirational seminars. People talk about where they've been, what they've done, how they got traveling, how they got going, and what they felt thought about it, what, how they feel about it at the end of it. And once you get inspired and you want to go, and, and the inspirational talks here would just absolutely blow people's minds. It's you really want to go. We've had people bring their wives, for instance, and the wife is kind of like, oh, a motorcycle thing, you know, I don't want to go. 
and they end up saying, we're leaving to go around the world next week. That's a very surprising thing. People don't really expect that. But they get inspired, and then the next thing they want to do is get informed. How do I do this? You know, yeah, I want to go, and it's obvious that people do it, but how do I do it? And we have a huge number of technical seminars on things like border crossings, uh, how to pack your gear, what to take, what you should be doing. How do you deal with life on the road? Uh, so that's you, you learn a lot about stuff like that. And the other thing you do is connect with other travelers. You get to talk to the people that have actually been out there and done it and come back. And they're planning another trip to go around the world or to another continent or something, just something a little farther than the usual oh, we're going to go for a ride for the day. These are people that are going out and, and doing big trips. It's, it's quite a different thing than your average motorcycle rally. So we try not to call it a rally. It's a traveler's meeting. Uh, people get together and learn, get inspired, and hit the road. And this is a pretty non-threatening atmosphere, too. Um, it, it's where um, when you go in to, to meet these other people who are travelers, everyone's there to help, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Um, I think that's one of the things that we get a lot of comments on. Um, that's a number of times I've received an email. You know, one of the things I loved about the event was there was no attitude. There's nobody there that thinks, oh, I'm better than you because I've done this. Everybody's just normal people. They've just done something a little bit extra. Um, there's no, my bike's better than yours because everybody's bike is the right bike for them. And by the time you've done a trip around the world and seen all the other bikes that people take and how very, very different they are, everybody does something completely different from everybody else, uh, you, you lose all the attitude. People get the attitude knocked out of them, as it were, on the road. Uh, once you've been out there and seen other people doing big trips, and there's always somebody doing something cooler, harder, sexier, whatever, than what you're doing. And you realize that it really doesn't matter. You just get out there and do it and travel and have a good time, see the world, learn a bit, uh, learn about other people and other lands. And you realize that, yeah, they're just like us. So I think the attitude gets lost somewhere along the way. And really, I mean, you want to do this sort of thing for yourself, not for somebody else. You don't want to do it to, to show that you can do something. You want to do it for your personal experience. So that means you don't have to prove anything to anyone. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. Um, some people do. Every once in a while, we get the guy who wants to go around the world in three months or whatever. You know, I mean, if you're doing that, you're doing it to say, I did it. Look at me. I can, I can do it. I was able to do it. And most people don't do that. I think uh, there's only a few that do. And I wish they wouldn't because you really are only doing it then to do it. And that's not what it's all about. Uh, to us, we find that um, a lot of people get out there and they, at the beginning of their trip, it's to do something special, to, do, uh, to may have an accomplishment. But as they get going, they change what the trip is about and it becomes more about the people they meet, uh, the things they learn along the way. And it becomes all about people. It, it changes quite a bit. But you have to slow down in order to do that. And once you've slowed down, there's no, oh, look at me, I can do this really cool thing. 
Yeah, it's all about perspective. I know for tourism, uh, we often made the reference to people that they could jump in, in, in my case, it was boating. They could jump in a powerboat and they could buzz around the whole area and be done in an hour, or they can paddle a boat around and enjoy every nook and cranny. Um, both of them are an experience of the area, but the one where you're going slowly, that's where you really take it in. That's where you get the real quality out of the trip. Absolutely. Um, the number of people I've said that I've met that have said, yeah, we understand what you're talking about when you say travel slowly. At first you go quick, quick, quick because you're used to a two week vacation and you've got to cram in every mile you possibly can and every site you can. And at the end of the two week vacation, you need another two week vacation to rest and relax and catch up. On the road, you can't do that. You do that for a, a little while and very quickly you realize that you're just gonna burn out. You just can't do it. And you start to slow down. And as soon as you start to slow down, you start connecting with people, you start taking the time to talk to people instead of, oh, I gotta go, I gotta go. Um, you start to realize that the people is what it's all about. You, know, you meet people in, in another country, you talk to them about all kinds of things and you start to connect with them and it becomes a very different trip and you really do slow down. Uh, I was talking to some people at our recent travelers meeting in the cusp, British Columbia, and I remember one couple said, you know, we started out, we were riding five, six, seven days a week, and now we're riding maybe three, you know, two or 300 kilometers a day. And we're loving it. It's the best thing we ever did was to slow down. I wanted to talk to you about the Horizons Unlimited meeting that you just went to in the cusp. I'm really stoked about this one coming up. I'll tell you for Ontario because I'm going to be there and, and I'm really excited about that. But uh, first, let me hear about this one because um, this was one of the largest ones you had, isn't it? Yeah, this is the second largest meeting in the world now. The UK meeting is our largest, and the CUSP is now our second largest. And for the folks who are going to the California meeting, you should be aware that California isn't as big as the CUSP, but you've still got a chance to get bigger. <laughs> so make sure you get to that one. Uh, it's the, the CUSP meeting has been going now since 2002. It's our second oldest meeting, which might help a little bit, but it's dry. It's it's drawing from Alberta, British Columbia. We had people from as far away as Florida at the meeting. Well, I should, shouldn't say as far away as Florida because we have people from Germany, Australia, Switzerland, France, and I know there's somebody from somewhere else in Eastern Europe and a few other countries. Uh, so we had a wide range of people attending. And that's the, the norm at all our travelers meetings is that you have not just the local people coming to them, but people from all over the world take a look at the Horizons Unlimited events page and check out the dates and plan their trip around the world or to another continent to make sure that they get to as many of the meetings as they possibly can. Because once you've been to one, you realize this is the place to connect with the people who think you're normal, not <laughs> crazy for wanting to go to another continent. It's like coming home. Yeah. Uh, somebody, uh, Carla King in the U.S. actually said it really well one time. She said, this is my tribe. This is where I come home. So what was it like there? You, you, there was a, a bunch of seminars, I assume. Um, how many seminars and what sort of things were covered? The number of seminars, I think, was around 60 or 70. I'm, I lost track wow. at one point. We had uh, seminars on everything from how to deal with bears to packing your bike, GPS, uh, oh, sidecar travel, how to travel through South America on a sidecar, packing your bike, um, 
We had Herbert and Ramona Schwartz from TourTech, Germany. The Herbert's the founder of TourTech. Mm -hmm. They were there telling about how they got traveling and what they've done with their two kids in a sidecar, uh, which is quite a cute rig. The two kids are six and seven years old, and they ride one behind the other in the sidecar, which Herbert drives, and Ramona follows on a 1200. So a range of people. Um, it was uh, Miles and his wife were there with their Ural sidecar, which they drove all through South America. So a range of vehicles. There was another one was a, was a Harley with a sidecar. We seem to have a fair number of sidecars this year, uh, but a Harley sidecar. And this is a real travel bike. Is sidecar travel becoming a, a bigger thing now? Uh, there's always a few at every meeting. They work really well. You can carry an enormous amount of stuff you don't need. Uh, most of the sidecars are, uh, it's, it's, let's call it luxury travel for motorcyclists because <laughs> you can carry so much stuff. Um, but they, they work well and they have this funny habit of not falling over like motorcycles do. <laughs> so it can be kind of useful in the mud and the slop, uh, especially things like the Ural with two-wheel drive. They can get through just about anything, with both wheels driving. So it, it's, it's another option. It's another way of going. Um, I know one couple who travel in a sidecar because she's too short to reach the ground in any normal motorcycle, but she can ride the sidecar. She can just climb up, and once she's going, she doesn't need to put her foot down. So they actually take turns riding the sidecar. There's how many Horizons Unlimited uh, travelers meetings going on in a year? How many go on the average year? Oh, it varies a bit, but uh, this year we have 22 around the world. We're on every continent except Antarctica. And uh, our first South Africa meeting is this year. We've got a whole range of events. We would like to go to all of them, but unfortunately there's just no way. It's <laughs> too far, <laughs> too many, and uh, we need to have a, a break ourselves every once in a while. But we've got a whole bunch coming but up. But you're going to a lot of them, aren't you? Yeah, we go to about half of them roughly. Uh, we just did uh, a number of them in Europe. We've spent seven weeks in Europe going to several of our events as well as a couple of Touratech events and the big BMW rally at uh, Garmisch Partenkirchen, which is, I think, 30,000 people this year. It's quite an event. Wow, so we've huge. got a fair number and, and more, going to, more to go to coming up. For the rest of the year now, I'm, I'm talking from North America, obviously. We're into September now. What do we have for dates mm -hmm. ahead of us as far as travelers' meetings? Well, this weekend, starting today's Friday, so this weekend we have North Carolina and France are going. Canada, the Ontario Travelers Meeting in Perry Sound that you're going to go to is next weekend, September 11. And in the UK, we've got uh, a meeting September 19. California is September 25th. We'll be at that one. And from California, we fly to Australia for Queensland, Perth, and Australia, Victoria, New South Wales. Germany's on in the middle of that. We're not going to go to that one from Australia. It's a little too far. Then we go to South Africa, and that's it for this year. We start the round all over again. But the next one's coming up for Canada is Ontario next weekend and California in three weeks, September 25th. And if anyone plans to go, all they have to do is drop by the website and they can see all the information on there. I think it's on the, the right-hand side. They can just go down there and, and click on the one they're interested in and sign up right online. That's right. That's the easy way to do it. And we really appreciate it when people do because it makes it a lot easier for us to figure out logistics like food, making sure there's going to be enough food there to feed people. 
that's important. But uh, if you don't have time to register online or you finally are just able to get away and sneak off from the boss and get to a meeting, just come anyway because we'll figure something out. We're travelers. Things change. We know that. We'll work it out. So just show up. And remember, if the, the dates have already gone by when you're listening to this show, um, all you have to do is drop by the website because they're happening every year. So they just have to go through and they look at the list there and uh, choose the one that you want to go to and, uh, and away you go. You'll be all set. That's it. No problem at all. Just show up. And I mean, it's all about travel, right? You, you want to travel to get to somewhere. And if you can connect with travelers when you're there and find out about where's the good places to ride in the area and other places to go if you're doing a big trip. You can find out about people from people that have come from the other direction. What's the next border crossing like? What's it like up ahead? Where are the really cool places to see? Thanks, Grant. Okay, you're welcome. Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Grant Johnson again, but this time we're going to talk about border crossings and all the sticky little things that go along with it and all the little tricks that Grant has to make the whole process a lot more fun than what it would be otherwise. I'm Jim Martin. Stay with us. The Great Outdoors. It's been a source of high-quality fun for generations. Unfortunately, it may not always be this way in generations to come. Irresponsible outdoor activities like driving off of designated trails or mud-bogging on public land can severely damage the beautiful places we play in. At Tread Lightly, we encourage you to have fun and conserve our environment by following three easy guidelines. First, always stay on designated trails. Second, be sure to cross streams only at places where the trail intersects the stream. Third, wash your vehicle after each ride to avoid spreading noxious weeds. Learn more about Tread Lightly and its training program called Tread Trainer by going to treadlightly.org. And remember, the impression you leave lasts a lifetime. Border crossings. Put those two words together and some people's hair stands up on the back of their neck. They'll break out in a mild sweat and they'll feel all the stress that goes along with something that they see as very complicated and very difficult. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And today we have Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited who's going to give some great tips on how to handle border crossings, what your approach should be, how to handle the money, the fixers, why cloud storage is highly valuable for documentation and much more. Hi, this is Grant Johnson from HorizonsUnlimited.com, and you're on Adventure Rider Radio. Today we talk border crossings with Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. Grant, let's start with what is a border crossing? What does it entail in an overall sense? Basically, when you change countries, every country has several concerns. One of them is that you're not a terrorist, you're not a bad guy, and that you're not trying to enter the country to work, and you're not going to stay, and if you're bringing a vehicle with you, and this is where it gets sticky, that you're not going to leave it behind, because if you leave it behind, then they miss out on the taxes that they like to collect when bikes or vehicles are imported into the country. So you've got to deal with all of those concerns that they have. And remember that they're not really welcoming you into their country because they want you there. They're 
focus is keeping the problem people and problem vehicles, et cetera, out. So there's a, a, a different focus than we would like to think. We would like to think that they really want to welcome us in, but it's not necessarily the case. Yeah, that's an interesting point because um, it's, it's easy to believe that, that they're there sort of welcoming tourists in. So with this focus, then they're focused on us as a person. They're focused on our machine. How about our packs and what we're bringing in? Yeah, they look at that too. Um, I've crossed, I, I couldn't count how many borders I've crossed, but I've only actually had my stuff inspected once oh. in all that time. Mind you, it was a very thorough inspection and they looked at every single thing. Uh, but how, and how you deal with that is, is an important thing. But uh, mostly they just wanna know who you are, why you're coming, when you're leaving, and if you've got a vehicle, where is it going to go? And are you taking it with you? And that's the important things that they care about. What do we need? So when we're, we're planning our, our border approach, in an overall sense, what are the basics? First off, when you arrive at a border, you want to arrive there fresh and early and not tired at the end of a long day, 10 minutes before they close. Because that's just a recipe for disaster. Um, some borders close at 5 o'clock, 4 o'clock, whatever they feel like. When it gets dark, it depends. So you need to have some kind of an idea of that. But you need to be prepared so that you physically are ready to spend the day there if necessary. There are borders where you will spend the day. There are borders where you could spend two days. So you want to be fresh, ready to go, a bottle of water at least, maybe a sandwich, something to carry you through if it takes a long time so that you aren't tired, frustrated, hot, and going to get yourself into all kinds of trouble. Um, you need to have your paperwork ready. Don't have the paperwork buried nice and safe at the bottom of a saddlebag or your top box. Have it ready in your jacket, ready to pull out, hand it out, organized, and no excess bits of paper that they don't care about. Now, all they really want to see is your passport, registration for the vehicle, and that's really about it. Some countries they'll need a carnet. You've got to have to have that for some countries, but we can talk about that later. Um, they don't want to know about anything else. Keep it simple. Uh, and I think that's a very important mantra for border crossings. Keep it simple. Don't, don't get carried away. Don't talk about stuff that they don't want to hear about. Answer their questions and just answer the question. I think that's really important. It's very easy to uh, get carried away and, and tell them too much. They don't want to hear it. They don't care. And you might say something that they want to hear, and that's bad. Yeah, I was going to mention that sometimes um, when we rattle on, we bring up other questions that never would have come up otherwise. Yeah, I'll give you a really good example. An American who lived in Dubai, had a Harley in Dubai, registered in Dubai, it was a Dubai vehicle. He flew it and himself to the U.S. for a vacation for a month. He wanted to ride his own bike around the U.S. And when he arrived, he was chatting away and he said along the way in the conversation, he said, you know, what if I wanted to sell my bike while I'm here? Red flag. They freak out. It's you don't have a carnet. You're not you, you're trying to sneak the bike in. You're doing something illegal here. You shouldn't do that. You can't do that. And by the time he ran around and around and around, it was six weeks before he got his bike back. Oh, 
So an innocent question, Oops. just making conversation, where works out to be your nightmare. Yep. Nightmare. Don't do that. No. If you're going to ask that question, ask long before you get there. Know the answer and be fully prepared to deal with what you want, whatever it is you want to do. But don't ask questions that you don't need to know the answer from right now. You need to know where do I go next? What paperwork do you want? And that's it. So we start off fresh and early. That's a big thing. We have all of our paperwork organized and ready. Um, we definitely keep it simple, as you said. Now, how do we approach this? What's the best approach? Clearly, we, we don't want to talk too much. We want to keep it simple. I've heard some people say one of the best ways to do it is to arrive at it, you know, and, and play a, a little dumb and, and be very smiley and happy. What, what's your opinion on that? Yep. <laughs> I don't know about the, the play a little dumb, but I, I think that's, that's certainly a valid approach. What they really want is for you to go away. Okay, so the easiest way for you to go away is to give them exactly what they want. Be prepared, clean piece of paper. Uh, if some some borders they want multiple copies of various things, have multiple copies ready. Have everything photocopied. Uh, a number of the Central American borders, for instance, they want four or five copies of everything. So make sure you've got those prepared, ready to go. Um, so you hand them what they want. They go stamp, stamp, stamp. Yep, you're good poof, you're gone. And they're happy. If you're a problem and you're too dumb, then it starts getting drawn out and it's no longer simple. It's getting to be more of a pain in the butt. And you don't want that. You want it simple, quick and easy. And the better prepared you are, the better it is. Having said that, you can arrive at a border that you haven't got a clue about. And as long as you are prepared, ready, you've got your basic documents, they'll whip you through there as quick as they can. Just do what you need to do and be prepared as best you can. So we have everything ready. We're keeping it simple. And, and really, you almost want to appear a fly on the wall. You want, you want to be that type of person that doesn't look interesting, but you don't really look uninteresting. You're just sort of nonplussed as you go through. Yep, absolutely. I, th I think uh, a lot of people arrive at a border, and after they've done a couple of borders, and again, Central America is a classic example of this. After you've done a couple of Central American borders, you know this is going to be hard. You know there's going to be lots of running around. You know they're going to want five photocopies, and the closest photocopier is five blocks away through the town at their cousin's store, which has the only photocopier in town. So you got to go there, and you don't have the right kind of money, and you got to get the money changed somewhere. And you go around and around and around, and it's really frustrating. So when you arrive at the next border, you know you're going to be frustrated. But you have to, to step back and say, you know, there are two approaches to this border. I can go into it and know I'm going to be frustrated because I know I'm going to be frustrated because that's what a Central American border is. It's an exercise in frustration. Or I can say to myself, you know, this is going to be interesting. I wonder how many people I'm going to meet, where I'm going to have to go, and what kind of strange and weird processes they've managed to work out in order to extricate every possible penny from me and keep as many people in the border town paid and occupied with a job as possible. So this is going to be an interesting and fun day. And I'm going to approach it with that attitude and I'm going to be prepared. I've got my stuff together. I've got my water. i got something to eat. And this is going to be fun. And if you do that, it is fun. And you can have fun and you can smile and shake hands and and be friendly, 
Or you can take the other approach and, and go into it with, this is going to be a horrible day. I'm going to be really frustrated and I'm going to get all pissed off and angry and ah, it's going to be horrible. You know, which would you rather do? Make it fun or have a bad day? I know which one I'd rather do. Some people are using local fixers when they go through, and I know we, we all know that, you know, Charlie and Ewan on their uh, their movie they made, uh, they're using local fixers, and I've seen many others doing it as well. What's the pros and cons here? Is it something we should be doing or not? To a certain extent, you're going to end up using fixers. You can get away without them, but it can take a lot longer. You have to be very, very careful with fixers because their real focus is not on helping you get through the border. It's on how much money can I make and how much money can my friends make. So you have to negotiate in advance with your fixer, how much is this going to cost me exactly? And make sure that they understand that's all they're going to get. Uh, if there's any, you need to say, if there's any fees that come up along the way, how much are they? How much do we have to pay for everything? I want to know the complete cost upfront and then you, you really want to be able to look in your uh, hidden wallet, uh, your money wallet, and say, well, I've got this much, and yes, I can pay you that, but that's all I've got. So if you have an idea of how much it should cost in advance, that helps. So you don't show them how much money you've got total. You've got how much money you have prepared to pay for this event because you've heard about how much the fees are. And uh, you don't want to have too much money available because they will come back at the end and say, oh, there was an extra fee for this and that, and it's going to cost an extra $200. No, it doesn't. You have to be prepared for that. Is it safe to pay them in advance, or should we be waiting till Wait the till end? Wait till the end. Wait till the end, because they will always come up with another fee for something else at the end if you're not careful. Um, and at the end, if they have said it's going to be $50, for instance, at the end of they say, oh, there's an extra fee for this, an extra fee for that. Well, you should have known that. You didn't tell me, so I'm not paying it. I'm giving you what you told me it was going to be at the beginning, and that's it. And pay them that and walk away. They can yell and scream, but it doesn't matter. It's generally an area where you can get taken advantage of using a fixer? Very often, yes. Very often. Um, some borders are worse than others, but I don't know. I'm always of, of mixed minds with fixers. Sometimes you really do need them because you just can't figure it out. It's, it's very difficult. Um, the average Central American border, there's always a fixture available. You really don't need them. You can do it without them. If you pay them too much, then they just get greedy and they want more from the next traveler and more from the next and more from the next. So everybody that pays them too much is just causing grief for everybody else. So you have to be very careful you don't overpay. Um, and your next border, of course, is going to be worse because of the guy that was there before you that paid too much. So. You have to be careful. Um, some of the Arabic borders um, into Egypt, for instance, a fixture can be very useful. Having said that, it can be done without, but it will still take all day to get into Egypt. Um, if you don't have the language at all, like some of the Russian countries, Russian-speaking countries, yeah, a fixture can be useful. It just depends on how, how much effort you're willing to put in. Like I said, with the it's going to be an interesting day or it's going to be a horrible day. It's going to be an interesting day and it's going to take a little bit longer if you do it yourself. But the advantage of doing it yourself is you did it. You made it through. You figured it out. They've not charged you excessive amounts. You haven't paid for a fixer. You've only paid what needs to be paid. Are the fixers at the gates? Uh, do they hang out at the borders? 
Oh God, they're they're all over the place. When you drive up, the first thing that, that will happen is half a dozen fixtures will crowd around you, and they will all try and get your business before you even get off the bike. That was going to be my question: is how do you find them? But you don't have to worry about it. They find oh, you. Oh, you don't have to go looking for them. Trust me, <laughs> there is absolutely no problem. So, Grant, what sort of things can we run into at the border? I mean, if you were to, you know, try and give somebody an insight to just prepare them for the different sort of things that can happen, but what sort of things can we expect or that we may expect at a border? Well, the number one thing is when the fixtures arrive and start crowding around you, if it's a real problem, you you try and get rid of them. You try and say, I don't want any help. I'm okay. But if they become really a problem, then you have to pick one. And as soon as you pick one, that gets rid of all the rest. And then you, because his job is to get rid of the rest because he's now got the job. So the rest give up and they go elsewhere. So he'll get rid of them. So that saves you a lot of aggravation. Um, But then you have to negotiate with him how much it's going to cost and what you're going to pay. As I said earlier, be very, very clear that you get it down to what is exactly the right amount and not pay too much. The next step without without a fixer or even with a fixer is where do you start well unfortunately it's not a nice simple lineup like booth one booth two booth three booth four you wish it was and i've only seen that once in the entire world it was a border crossing in i think it was into chile it was absolutely dead simple booth one you hand them your papers booth two you hand them your papers booth three you hand them your papers booth four you hand them your papers tick, 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 and you're out and you're done. It was like 10 minutes. It was very simple. Egypt, for instance, is a, think of a large compound. You could probably park 500 cars in it. There's ratty old buildings scattered all over the place. And you have absolutely no idea where to go for anything. There's no signs. There's the odd little word here and there in Arabic. Everybody's wandering around, milling about, trying to figure out where to go. Nobody knows anything. Where do you start? You know, it's, it's, it's really daunting. What do you do? So you try and find somebody in a uniform and just look kind of dumb and wave your papers. and They'll point you in the right direction. I remember going into Egypt, walking in. You remember the old bank tellers where they had the, uh, the bars in front of the window so you know, oh, yeah. to get in? Yeah. Think of 40 or 50 people all yelling, every one of them with their papers in their hand, and all of them crammed up to the counter, trying to reach over the person in front of them to wave their papers in front of the guy that's sitting behind the desk. Oh my God. <laughs> it's, I took one look at this and went, oh, where do I start? Oh Lord, this is not going to be fun. Um, fortunately, I'm a little taller than the average Egyptian, and I just leaned over farther than they did. And what this guy was doing was he would deal with papers, stamp them, put his hand straight up in the air, and the appropriate hand would grab the papers and leave. And then he would grab the next piece of paper that was as close as possible to him in front of him, and he'd deal with those. That was how it was done. No lineup, no nothing, just next. And I leaned over farther, put my papers closer to his nose, and he took them, dealt with them, handed them back, and I was out of there in minutes compared to some guys I think are still there because they're short. <laughs> it's, it's just crazy. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. I was going to say, are you ever camping out of these places? I mean, does it ever take several days to get through a border? Yeah, it can do. Uh, I've got a great story about a couple of Germans who are, shall we say, sticklers for doing it the right way. 
and they arrived at the border, I think it was into Chad in Africa, and they pulled up to the border, went through the first steps, and the guy said, $10. And they said, it's, it's not $10, there is, there is no fee, we checked. There is no fee for this border, $10. There is no fee for this border, $10. And they go around and around a little bit, and the guy was adamant, it was $10, that was what it's gonna cost you each to get through the paperwork. And they refused to pay. Three days later, they gave up and paid. Well, you know, that says something about them. That three days, that, that is a couple of determined oh, people. Oh, yes, very determined. <laughs> there is no fee. There is no fee, but yes, there is. And you can tell when it's a legitimate fee and when it's not because you hand him the $10, he opens the drawer, slides it into the drawer, and closes the drawer. Done. That's it. That was a bribe. That was his paycheck. A lot of these border crossings, you have to understand that the pay is very poor. They may not have been paid for two months. And the way they get along, the way they feed their families is collecting a little bit from every traveler that comes through. And while we don't condone bribing and we would really rather you didn't, sometimes that's the only way through. You have to be tough and you have to know I want a receipt and asking for a receipt will often make them say, okay, don't worry about it, you can go, you can go. You're, you're a tourist, you can go. Um, but sometimes that's just the way it is. So are the bribes fair? Are they, are they level across the board? Or if I come in in a, my fancy you know, BMW suit, um, riding a very expensive motorcycle, am I going to pay more than the guy who's uh, you know, riding the C90? Not if you're smart, because it, they will try and get more and they will always ask for whatever they think they can get out of you. And the fancier you look, and or the bigger your four by four, for instance, the, the more you're going to, uh, they're going to try and collect out of you. But it all comes down to negotiation. Um, you say, I can't afford it. Sorry, I haven't got it, or I haven't got the right money. Uh, I don't have any local currency. And they say, Oh, we take U.S. dollars. You say, Oh, U.S. dollars. I used all those up. I've only got, well, I got one dollar left. And you pull out your lonely, tattered one dollar bill and. That'll do. Very often they need something. It doesn't have to be much. Take a look around you and see what the locals are dressed like and how much money they're likely to have and understand that they probably get through for peanuts, whereas you're the rich traveler, so you're going to pay more, but not much more. A while back, I was interviewing someone, I can't remember who it was, but they mentioned about um, uh, about having a satellite phone. We were talking about communications. Mm-hmm. and. Um, they said, what's a satellite phone going to do? What are they going to do, phone their mom and say, you know, I'm having a problem? It's like no one can help you at that point. So, so you're at the border and everything starts to go pear-shaped. What do you do? It depends what you call pear-shaped. Um, as long as you have the right documents and it's very important that your documents are not expired or, and they're not going to expire, um, your driver's license is legitimate, the bike's registration is correct, you've checked your serial numbers and made sure that the serial numbers on the bike and on the uh, registration documents are correct. If you're using your car name, make sure all the numbers match. Everything has to be good. And if everything's good and you haven't done anything stupid like opened your mouth when you shouldn't have, um, it's going to be fine. It's very unusual for anybody to get tossed in jail at a border crossing for doing something wrong, crazy, bad, whatever. 
Let's talk about money for a minute, the money exchange and, and traveling with money and cash versus credit cards, those sorts of things. But let's talk about traveling with money first. That's a tough one to deal with. You know, we want to take cash with us, of course, but what do you, what, what's some tips that you have for that? Definitely carry cash. U.S. dollar is the norm for uh, all of North and South America. You can, you're going to use it everywhere. The euro for large part of of Africa is the currency of choice, but for most of the rest of the world, it's the U.S. dollar. So you always want to have, you know, a few hundred dollars at least in U.S. dollars. Um, a lot of people think that carrying a thousand dollars is a good thing. And one of the advantages of carrying $1,000 in cash is that no matter how pear-shaped things go, you can always walk to the airport and buy a ticket out, leave everything behind, but you can get out. So if things go really pear-shaped, you can get out, and that's all that really matters. So having some cash handy is good. Now, you need to make sure that it's spread around a bit so that if uh, somebody's stealing or trying to break in, or trying to rob you, they're not going to get all of it. So you want to spread your money around in multiple different places. Um, one important little tip is don't put it near your battery. We had one couple who'd been traveling for three years. They got to somewhere in the middle of Africa and they'd used up all their money and their last batch of money was in a Ziploc bag underneath the battery. Well, yes, they pulled out the tattered Ziploc bag and the bundle of charred black bits of thousand dollars of worth of cash and kind of well i think they were a little upset to say the least in the middle of africa and that was the last of their money and the nearest money is quite a ways away and they don't have any money in the bank anyway so what do you do don't put your money near the battery that's a really important lesson, yes. Anywhere like that. I mean, you, I guess you really have to think about where you're going to put it. Uh, now, do you think it's safe to discuss some, some ideas for places to store it, or do you think that maybe is something that's better left to a smaller venue? There's, uh, there's a million places on motorcycles to stash money, and every bike is completely different. Um, the old Airhead BMWs had a tube underneath the gas tank, and you could put all kinds of things underneath the inside there and then cap it off. But yeah, there, there are so many places on bikes that you can stash money. Um, you can put money in three or four different places on your person. Um, I know one pe person who likes to put his money in his really smelly boots. He says, nobody goes near my boots. <laughs> nice. Okay, so just spread it around a little bit here, a little bit there. Everybody knows about the mugger's wallet, right? No. No. Oh, well, we need to talk about a mugger's wallet. You need two wallets. One is what we call the mugger's wallet, and that's the wallet when somebody points a gun at you and says, give me your money, you give them that one. And that one has the two expired credit cards and 40 or 50 bucks. That's it. You give him that, he takes it, he runs. He's happy. But you also have your real wallet stashed. In fact, maybe you don't even have an actual wallet, but you have money and credit cards stashed somewhere else on your person. And the purpose of the mugger's wallet is obviously to get rid of the mugger. He's not gonna check the credit cards and make sure the dates aren't expired. He's gonna see cash, he's happy, he's gone. You also have to have some other money and that's not gonna be enough money and you have to have current credit cards. So you stash those on you and the only time you go to those places where you have your extra money stashed is in your hotel room where nobody can see you. During the day, when you're out wandering around, going to the market, buying odds and ends, you're using the mugger's wallet and the cash in it 
for today's purchase. Because as you're buying something from a local market, the mugger is standing around the corner watching you and watching where you pulled your money out from. So when you walk down the street and he accosts you and wants your money, if you pull out your mugger's wallet, that's the one he's seen you using. That's, as far as he's concerned, the money. So if you've been in the market using your regular wallet and then the guy walks up and says, give me your money, and you try and hand him this special wallet that you pull out of another pocket, he's going to already see that you have another wallet. Now he's thinking there's two, and he's, he's really going to end up with both of them, isn't he? That's right. You don't, and you don't want to do that, of course. So you need to make sure when you're out that you're always using the mugger's wallet. That's your daily wallet, your usable, your use every day wallet. That's the wallet as far as you and everybody else are concerned. But you have the real amounts of money and credit cards stashed somewhere else that nobody else ever sees. Right, and you don't keep any ID or anything in that wallet. Expired ID, copies of ID, fake ID. It's good to have a, a photocopied driver's license in that wallet. A couple other bits of uh, ID or something, uh, a photocopy of the registration for the bike. He gets a fat wallet. And he thinks, yep, that's the wallet. That's the money. And he's happy. Okay, you don't want it to be too slim. If it only has some money and two car credit cards on it, you know, he's going to go, nobody has a wallet that skinny. Come on, where's the real one? Right, so you want to make this thing look as legitimate as possible. It is legitimate, except that it's expired credit cards and there's only a little bit of money in it. And it's all copies. And it's nice when a policeman stops you, which they can do in some parts of the world, and demand to see your passport and identification. So you pull out your wallet and you show them your photocopied driver's license and you, you show them the, your passport because you have to use the real one for that. Um, but most of it is copies. Traveling with uh, cash versus credit cards, clearly you, you need a mixture of both. Can you get by with just cash and without credit cards? Sure, if you can carry enough, but uh, you're going to have to carry so much that you're going to be really nervous all the time about getting robbed. You're going to have to get cash out sometime and you're going to use an ATM. Uh, virtually every country in the world has an ATM machine that you can get local cash out of. Iran being one of the few countries that you can't, that's very difficult. I think there's a couple of cash machines in Tehran, but otherwise forget it, there is none. But virtually everywhere else, any decent sized city is going to have cash machines and you can get cash out in the local currency or very often they have local currency or US dollars available in a cash machine. So why do a money exchange then? Why meet a person on the street and buy money from them? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> you don't need to do it too often, very, but where you do want to do it is when you leave a country, you may have too much money left over from the previous country and you want to get rid of it. Mm. And often in the next country, they don't want it. So you try and get rid of it. Um, some countries, some parts of Africa, the cash machine may be in the capital city only, and that's 500 kilometers away, and you got to get there. So at the border, there will be guys that are going to do cash exchanges. And that's okay, but know the exchange before you enter the country because they will try to rip you off first crack. And if you are dumb enough to say, okay, that sounds like a good exchange rate when you really have no clue, you're going to get taken. So just know the exchange rate. As far as hiding the cash on our bikes, we want to take the obvious precautions. We don't, don't want to put it near the battery, which is what you said. Uh, we want to keep it away from heat or any sort of chemical. Um, yep. And obviously where it's not going to be found. And wear as well. Like, I mean, because uh, even stuffing something beside a battery that vibrates around can certainly wear away bills. So that's a big concern. 
for sure. There's lots of ideas. Uh, there's lots of places to put things. You'll always find something interesting, somewhere unique. And every traveler I've ever talked to that's shown me where they hide their money, and some some do because of who I am, and they say, oh, I've got this really cool place. And I say, yep, that's interesting. And there's lots of interesting places to hide money. And every bike's so different that there's always going to be somewhere just underneath a piece of duct tape. That'll do. Yeah, just winding some electrical tape around a, a frame bit. You know, you've, you've got something there and it can look like it's holding wires down. Yep, that'll do fine. Or duct tape. I know of some guys who used uh, duct tape on their fuel tank where the knees rub, but underneath there was a Ziploc bag with some money in it. That works. Nobody would ever think to look underneath a bunch of ratty old duct tape, would they? We're going to step back here and talk about the border crossing. You mentioned Carnet, about having a Carnet for your motorcycle. So let's talk about that. What is a Carnet? When you enter a country with your motorcycle, that country wants to get uh, taxes, fees for the importation of the vehicle. However, that's a bit of a problem because if they want the taxes from you and you had to pay the taxes in a country like Egypt where the import duty for a motorcycle is 300% of the value of the bike, that's a problem. If you've got yourself a $20,000 GS, you don't really want to give the Egyptian border crossing $60,000 in cash. That's probably a difficult thing to do. And then you have to trust them when you leave to hand you the $60,000. I don't think that's going to happen. So the Carnet came into being, I think, in the 20s, based out of Switzerland, for the purpose of guaranteeing to the country that you're entering that they have your money, and if you leave the vehicle in the country, they will pay the import duty. So it's a guarantee to the country that they will get their money. It's as simple as that. So you have to get a Carnet, and in order to get a Carnet, you have to post a bond or post a cash bond or buy an insurance system that will pay for the Carnet. For instance, for North Americans, it's quite straightforward. U.S. and Canada, we go to the Canadian Automobile Association in Ottawa, and you'll talk to a lady named Suzanne Dennis. She's the Carnet person for North Americans. And what she will want to know is how much is your bike worth and what countries are you going to? If you're going to Egypt, oh, 300%. Oh, you're going to Nicaragua, 10%. You're going to some other country, it's 5%, and so forth. Every country has a different importation duty that they require. She will then work out the value of your bike. You need to have the correct value of your bike. She's been around this game a long time. She gave us our Carnet way back in 1987, so she knows what the values are. So give her the value of your bike. She'll work out the duties that it's going to be and tell you, okay, you've got your value because worth this much. <clears throat> You're going to these countries. This is what the Carnet is going to cost. You can post a bond, and you can do it through your bank, and the bank has gives them a guarantee, and the Automobile Association has basically their money, their, their hands on the money. You can't touch the money until the Carnet is released. Or you can buy insurance, and there's a fee to do the documents, which is, I think, about $300, if I remember rightly, to actually do the paperwork and make it all happen. And then the insurance fee varies depending on the value of the bike, but it's going to be in the $300 to $800 range, very roughly, for a Carnet for a year. 
and make sure you understand that when you return with the bike, you clear the carnet by bringing the bike back to your home country, importing it into your home country and getting the carnet stamped in your home country is the guarantee that the bike is not in Egypt because Egypt is known for claiming that the bike is there and it's not. So you have to make sure that you bring the bike back into your home country and get it stamped by the customs authorities, send the document back to Suzanne and she will clear the carnet and you get your money back, except for the fee. But let's just back up though, when you said about um, putting out the, the money and setting up the carnet to begin with, are you saying that if you're going into Egypt with uh, with this 300% import tax uh, that they'll want, or they want guarantee for, are you saying that you're going to have to put that $60,000 in the bank and leave it there for the Automobile Association to have access to? There's two ways of doing it. One is, yes, that's correct. You can do it that and way. the other is the insurance. And the other is insurance. Now, when we went on our trip around the world, we had to get the carnet and we had to put up a cash bond because that was the only thing there was. There was no insurance. It was just put up the cash. That's it. And you don't leave until you put up the cash. Uh, and that was a big hit. It was very difficult. The only good thing about it is when you come home, guess what? There's actually some money left. Some money. <laughs> so yeah. you can reestablish. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice forced savings. Yes. So you're not destitute when you return. Yeah, but if you've got a new bike, it can be a lot of money. Um, our bike, unfortunately, yeah. was uh, a crash-damaged bike that fell off a truck on the way to the dealer in Alberta, and we got it for, I think it was $2,500. So our, our carnet that we had to pay the cash for was 7500 bucks, which in 1987 was still a big chunk of money and really hurt, but it wasn't ridiculous. Like you could buy today, you can buy a brand new 2014 BMW 1200 GSA, $25,000. Now you're going to Egypt, that's a $75,000 bond. Wow. But who would do that if insurance is available? Why would you even bother? Why would you consider that? You got more money than you know what to do with. That would be the only reason to do it. <laughs> and the insurance isn't cheap. So it would just be you and I that would do that then. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, a lot of people look at the cost of the insurance and say, oh, that's 800 bucks, and it's gone. I can put up the bond and oh, not I lose see. anything. Okay, mm. so you know, if you can afford it, fine. Or if you're riding something that's really cheap, you know, you could have a Honda C90 and its value is 300 bucks. Okay, not a problem. I think I can put $900 in the bank for my carnet. Right. Well, that's one point I wanted to talk about with the carnet is that a lot of people have mentioned to me that when they've got their carnet, they had to consider the what vehicle they wanted to take. And they, they didn't necessarily drive a very expensive vehicle just for that very reason. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, to consider that. If you're going to do it, think about what vehicle you're going to take in that sense, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, and a lot of travelers are on old ratty bikes because cheap carnet. Now, it's very important to understand you, it depends on where you're going because, like I said, Egypt is 300%. In fact, I think I've actually gone up to 400% because Egypt has made so many claims that they charge an extra uh, chunk on top just to deal with the hassle of Egypt. So it's higher. But if you're going to South America, for instance, you don't need a carnet at all. North and South America, no carnet. Africa, carnet. Russia, carnet. Australia, carnet. So it varies. You have to figure out where it is you're going to go. And sometimes people will adjust their route because, oh, that country's really expensive for a carne, so I'm not going to go there. And they only do countries that are under 50% on the carne, and then it's no big deal. It's quite a bit cheaper. So it just depends on where you want to go. 
having said that, it's really important to make sure that you don't have a very single route. You want to include countries on either side of your route because stuff happens, things go wrong, and suddenly a, bo a country closes its border. I mean, think of if you were planning to go through the Ukraine and your only route was through the Ukraine and your carnet didn't allow you to go to the countries on either side of it, so you had to go through and all of a sudden Ukraine is in bad shape, you don't want to go there, but you can't because your carnet doesn't allow you to go around, so you have to fly over. That's a big extra expense that you weren't planning on. So you want to really work with Suzanne and make sure that you've got as many countries as you can at an appropriate uh, carnet rate to make sure that you have some flexibility on your route. Things change, you change your mind, you change your route, things happen. That's a very good tip. So we've talked about the perfect uh, scenario. You take your bike, you ride it through, and you bring it back out. What happens if it doesn't come back out? Ah. <laughs> what happens if it crashes, if it gets wrecked, if somebody hits it, somebody steals it, even worse, because, you know, nothing to do with you. You wake up in the morning and it's gone. Then what happens? Okay, first off, if the bike is stolen, you have to go to the police immediately and make a report and make sure that the hotel you're staying at or whatever, everybody is happy that it really was stolen because I won't mention any names, but certain vehicles have occasionally been stolen that weren't. And unless you can prove comfortably to the police that it was really stolen, you've got a problem. So don't plan on selling your bike in the country and say that it was stolen. It has to be pretty clearly stolen and the police have to be happy with that. They will then talk to the customs officials and give you appropriate documentation. Yes, we believe it was stolen. We're happy it was stolen. It's not a problem. And then the customs guys will stamp your documents before you leave the country that it was stolen and we're comfortable with that. And then you're okay. Oh, that's great. That's good news. Yeah. If they're not okay, you leave the country without the bike. And some countries, they also stamp your passport with that there's a motorcycle with you and you can't leave at all. You've got a real problem. So you need to be really careful that you talk to the police and that everything's documented and that everything's okay. But if you can't prove that it was stolen, it's definitely a problem. Getting out of the country can be one problem. When you get home, it's another problem because the bike didn't return home. Therefore, that country can legitimately claim against the carnet and they get the money. If you put up a bond, they get the money, it's gone, you lose. If it's insurance, well, Okay, that's what insurance is for. You're covered, but it's still a real hassle. And getting another car name might be difficult. So what if it gets wrecked? If it's wrecked, not a problem. The vehicle is there, the police look at it, they do a police report, they talk to customs, job done, taken care of. Um, they might even, police have been known to know somebody who can dispose of the wreckage for you at a reasonable fee. Well, this is great. It sounds a lot better than what I thought, because to me, it sounded very scary, the thought of that you had to get it out no matter what. But I mean, if you're covered, if it's stolen or, or wrecked, I mean, that sort of makes it a little bit simpler process. And um, for me, I mean, I couldn't imagine putting up, uh, you know, $75,000 yeah. for a, a motorcycle. And the scary part would be, it's not only the fact that you're putting up your money and tying it up, it's what if something does go wrong? You know, what if, what if something, you know, just doesn't work out? And it, what if it was stolen, you couldn't prove it? Whatever the case is, that's a big chunk of money you could be out so the insurance to me sounds like a great idea oh yeah it's great um, and it's only been going the last I think 10 12 years now um, might even be less than that kind of think of it in for North America Europe has had it for a long time um, the RAC in UK for instance has had insurance 
for decades. And they were really shocked when they found out that Canada didn't have insurance. You, you had to put up a cash bond. So, yeah, be glad that we've got it now because it used to be very expensive for North Americans to travel overseas. The insurance isn't through a private company. It's through the Automobile Association. Like yeah. It's them that's actually doing the insurance. I don't know if they do it through a, a separate insurance agency or if it's just the CAA that does it, but you do everything through them. Suzanne gives you a piece of paper to sign. You give them the money, job done. Any other things we should consider or should be considering when we're thinking of getting a carnet? No, that's really about it. Keep the value of the bike down as much as possible. Keep it simple. Um, the important thing is when you're actually using the carnet and you're entering a country that requires a carnet is to really understand how it works. It's very simple, but very often the border crossing guys haven't got a clue. They don't see them enough. They don't use them enough. Um, it's new on the job. I mean, we went into Argentina at a time when they did require the carnet and the guys at the border, when we came in at the port, they had no idea how to do it. It took us a day to get the right person who had heard about a carnet and sort of knew what it was and get him to stamp it properly in so he could enter the country. You know, they knew they needed it, but that was as far as they got. And um, you need to understand how to work it. It's, it's quite straightforward. It's just a four-part form where the top left is your entry. The top right is your exit, the bottom left is their entry, and the bottom right is their exit. So it's just get the appropriate piece stamped correctly and the appropriate person keeps the right piece of paper, and that's it. It's not very complicated, but you need to understand it because I've seen them stamp immediately on the wrong place, wrong side. So just be careful. We have all this paperwork for crossing borders, including our carnet. What's the best idea or the best plan for storing very important paperwork? There's as many ideas on that and what's the best way to do it as there are people out there. Everybody does it in a different place. Um, the last place I would recommend you do it is in your top box. And that seems kind of strange because I know a lot of people like to put their paperwork and a laptop and camera in their top box because it's really easy, it's convenient. But you wouldn't believe how many stories I've heard of missing top boxes. Riding along, you come to a stop, you go, oh, top box is gone. They, they come off. The attachment methods are rarely really good unless you've actually bolted it on. All of the removable top boxes are susceptible to getting flung off. I've seen even bolted on ones literally rip the mounts into pieces and disappear down the cliff. So top box is the last place I would put anything valuable. Um, having said that, I like a tank bag for the important documents. Um, you can hang it on a string around your neck, put it in your riding jacket, but you got to be really careful you don't put your jacket down somewhere that's going to be at risk of being stolen. There is no perfect place. There, there's, no matter what you do, nothing's perfect. There's always a flaw with everything. Even hanging it around your neck, um, that mugger, he sees a string hanging around your neck, he wants what's on the end of it because he knows it's your valuables. It may only be paperwork and it's useless to him and he's just going to toss it in a bin a couple blocks down the street. But there's something, there might be something in there, there might be your money in there, and he wants it. So nothing's perfect. Which brings me to the next question. How many copies should we have of our paperwork and should we bring originals, copies, both? You have to have the originals of everything. That's, that's number one, and I recommend burying that as far as you can. But lots of copies, and copies that are like color photocopies of colored documents that look really good. Um, British Columbia driver's license, I photocopied mine and laminated it. It looked great. It, um, 
I think, yeah, I'm past the statute of limitations. I handed my photocopied driver's license to a California policeman once, and he took it, and he was good with it. Not a problem. Photocopied and laminated, modified registration document, and took that and was happy with it. Not a problem. So hmm. if you're in some border in the middle of Africa, they don't know what your Canadian or American registration and driver's license is supposed to look like. It's probably whatever it is, even a good photocopy is better than what they've got. So it's good enough. And as long as the, shall we say, the spirit of the law is upheld, in other words, that's you, that's the correct birth date, that's your driver's license number, that's your country, that's your home address, the registration document shows the correct serial number for the bike, and it's got your name on it, and your name matches your driver's license, and it matches your passport, and all the numbers and things that matter are correct. It's all good. It all works. Everybody's happy. They see what they need to see. They get the information they need to get. That's what matters. The fact that it's the original, fancy, factory-issued document really isn't critical. It's the spirit that matters. So use photocopies, have several copies. If you're heading for Central America, have 20 or 30 copies of everything because they go through copies like, like they were free. Of course, somebody's getting paid, but that's another story. In Africa, they really don't use copies. They don't care, except for, I think, one. I think Mali likes copies, but everybody else doesn't care. Don't worry about it, but have enough copies that you can hand them out without worrying about it. And you can always get more copies in the next town anyway. So don't carry 100 of them, but just carry enough. And you're not trying to pull a fast one with it. You're just trying to, to preserve your originals when you're handing them a photocopy. So really, there should be no big deal. I imagine if they find out, they're just going to ask you for the original. Yeah, yeah. They, they will occasionally say, I must see the original. But don't let it get too far out of your sight because that's the original. That's the one that matters. But uh, again, if you've got a good photocopy... And very important when, you, when you're at home preparing to go and you're getting these copies, scan it so that you've got a good scanned version of it and put it on your website or your internet uh, Dropbox or something so that you have access to the original scan of that document and you can always reproduce it. Think of you've been robbed thoroughly and you're standing there in your underwear, now what? Well, all you need to do is find an internet cafe Walk in, sign into your account, and print everything. You've got all your documents again. You've got copies of it. You can go to the embassy. You can get a new passport. You've got all your documentation. Yeah, that's a really good tip. Although I would say you'd want something over your underwear first. But <laughs> um, but, but after that, yeah, that's a great idea. And if, especially if you use something like Gmail, it's on there, it's in the cloud, and it's uh, or like you said, Dropbox. It's, uh, it's there for you no matter where you are. You just have to download it. What a great, uh, what a great tip. Yeah, and have it in a couple of places too because things go wrong, things get broken into, th accounts get hacked, who knows. So have it in at least a couple of places just to make sure. I'm always reminded of uh, a guy who was, did a whole trip around South America. He spent a year in South America and he was using an iPhone for storage of his photographs and he also had an internet account with some photo storage place and he figured he was in great shape and then his iPhone died and he got home and he said well I got him on the internet and went to the internet account and that company got out of business and the only photos he had left mm. were the small images this is in the days when 640 by 480 screens were big 
And he only had these little tiny photographs that he'd put on his website, and that was it. All his photographs were gone. So multiple storage places, multiple copies, backed everything up in several different places. Be really careful. It's really horrible to lose all that stuff. It's photographs, documents, whatever you're talking about. Lots of different storage places. Okay, well, that's wonderful, Grant. Thank you very much. That's a load of information for us and uh, certainly a lot of great things in there and some really, really sharp tips for people. Oh, you're welcome. I hope it helps people and we hope to see them out on the road and having a little bit of fun at the border crossing instead of nightmares. And I'll see you at uh, Ontario next week. Oh, definitely. Yep, we'll see you on Saturday. Excellent. Thanks, Grant. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. I've been speaking with Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. And of course, you can find out more information about Grant and what he does in Horizons Unlimited at the website horizonsunlimited.com. A link to Horizons Unlimited will be on the show notes uh, on our website, adventureriderradio.com. And of course, you won't want to miss a single episode of Adventure Rider Radio. But next week, you definitely don't want to miss it because we're going to have coverage of the Horizons Unlimited Travelers Meeting that I'm going to attend. And Grant will be there as well. I'll certainly have things for you to listen to if you can't attend yourself. But if you are attending, make sure you stop me and say hello. Hey, you want to do Adventure Rider Radio a favor? Drop by the iTunes website where the podcasts are, find our podcast, and rate it for us so that we have a rating at iTunes. Drop by our website, send us some feedback, let us know what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show, what would you like to hear on the show, anything at all. Drop us a line. Feedback is fantastic. Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you by Canoe West Media. Hi, I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. And we are Two Wheeled Nomad, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Woo! This is Dr. Gregory W. Fraser, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs>